This episode is going out a little early. I know, Halloween is not over yet. But Election Day is close, probably the most important one of our lives, and that needs addressing. Have you ever asked a naturalized American how he or she feels about the business of voting? If you have, it's probably given you a whole new slant on the matter. To those men and women who were born in other countries, the right to vote is a precious privilege, and they line up before the voting booth on Election Day with the same high sense of pride and responsibility that one might feel upon being awarded some rare degree. Actually, the right to vote should give us all the same heady thrill. It is we, you and I, who determine the course of our country and the conditions of our own lives with those votes we cast on Election Day. Just one reminder, make sure your opinions will be counted. Make sure you cast your vote by being very sure to register. Registration days differ in varying localities. Check on the time in your community and get your name on the rolls. Then take advantage of all of America's media of communication for informing yourself on the issues involved. And then when Election Day comes, go to the polls with pride and responsibility and vote. This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant red bat, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the Ethiopian glacier. folks what are you waiting for admission is free to Ballycast, the podcast of the carnival sideshow and variety arts you're just in time we're gonna have a free show we're gonna bring out the strange people the weird people here they come now watch the doorway you'll see what they do you'll hear what they talk about they're all alive on the inside get your ticket and come in Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen some important words of warning. This podcast is not family-friendly. I'm not even thinking about it, so listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe, even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense, and if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host, Wayne Kaiser. Welcome to Ballycast, episode 147. Ballycast is brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment. Publisher, books, CDs, DVDs, and more for showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. The feature segment of today's show, that old reliable fan favorite, P.T. Barnum. Always a surprise. My voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and as I believe happy majority. That door is the looking glass and inside it is Wonderland. It's Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. Regarding anything I say in this podcast, don't ever take my word for it. Always research what you hear. Don't let anyone think for you. Most people can barely think for themselves. In the news, 
William Ratchford sent me yet another link. Those of you with Amazon Prime can watch The Circus Down the Road. Welcome to one of the most beautiful and mysterious places on Earth. When you're born in the circus, it's something that will always stay with you permanently. Something that you were born with, that you'll stay with, and that's something like I want to pass on to my children. You know, that's something that will always be there. Always, always. A traditional circus is, as circuses go, I, I don't see them being around many more years, and that's a shame. In line with that, France is banning the use of bears, tigers, lions, elephants, and other wild animals in traveling circuses, banning keeping dolphins and orcas in marine parks, and banning raising mink on fur farms. The ban does not apply to wild animals in zoos. As they put it, solutions will be found for each animal on a case-by-case basis. The French government will offer an 8 million euro package to help people working in circuses and marine parks find other jobs. And that's pretty much the last nail in the coffin for circuses as they know them today. Bellicast has already demonstrated a way forward in episode 125. All episodes of Bellicast are always available online and I urge you to look at episode 125 for some interesting ideas. You have a need. Yes, I do. Would you like to talk about it? I certainly would. On November 3rd, California voters will determine how some of the state's gig workers will be classified. As you'll recall... Ballycast episode 130 discussed some things about my listeners, independent contractors all in their lives as entertainers. This November, a California ballot measure may lead the way for the rest of the country, creating a new legal classification for gig workers like Uber drivers, Instacart shoppers, and DoorDash deliverers. Not quite employees, but not the independent contractors they've been until now. Under Proposition 22, heavily funded by those companies, their workers would be assured of something resembling a minimum wage, as well as some health care coverage and access to workers' compensation. If the measure fails, the companies may well have to recognize their workers as employees, Uber and Lyft have threatened to leave the state if that happens. It's possible they might simply revamp the way they operate in California instead. Including labor advocacy groups say gig work is too precarious and transforming contractors into employees may bring some stability to those who depend on apps and one-offs to keep them solvent. The outcome could chip away at traditional employment and labor protections in all sorts of ways. In recent years, California has passed new rules governing others, like freelance writers and musicians. Whether or not Prop 22 wins in November, gig workers of all types should stay alert. And now a word about one of our most popular products. On the Midway, Secrets of the Circus, Carnival, and Sideshow, a book on CD-ROM by Wayne Kaiser. 
Ooh, that's me. Assisted by hundreds of old-time showmen and showwomen. It's all here, alive, behind this curtain. Lifelong Carney and circus veterans told us the facts, and they're all here. This book is not a happy clown book for children. It's the real behind-the-scenes story, and parts of it are not pretty. What's in it? My Carney Lingo Dictionary, the most comprehensive compendium in print anywhere. The secret backstage talk of workers in the carnival and the circus is a great way to understand the inner workings of the carnival lot. The secrets of dozens of your favorite carnival games, honest and, uh, otherwise. Which are winnable and which are always rigged. Find out here. Twelve full-length books from archives all over the world, like Sideshow and Animal Tricks, a how-to book by Hereward Carrington, and Houdini's book on working acts. Carnival Foods, those great tastes you can only get when the show is in town. Recipes for 16 great carnival foods like candy apples, snow cones, corn dogs, funnel cake, elephant ears, caramel popcorn, and more. Circus and carnival humor, contributed by veterans of the traveling life. Plus our own amazing dark ride. The prizes, crazy things you try to win from stuffed animals to balloons, from plaster figures to plastic swords. A look at prizes of the past and links to wholesalers today. Carney's only catalogs, 538 pages in our own click-to-read browser. See the legendary Brill's Bible of Building Plans, selling plans for rides, games, sideshow acts, and much more. H.C. Evans Company offered honest and crooked carnival games, gambling equipment, loaded dice, and more. Hex Manufacturing Company sold prizes from flash to slum, plaster figurines, blankets, and just in case you might need one, pistols from a very rare 1933 original. The late Slim Price, old-time carnival showman and moderator of the Freak Show Discussion Group, said... If you have any kind of interest in carny or circus lore, this is a CD you must own. It's an awesome piece of work. I'm still finding stuff in it. It's a pleasure to read. Wonderfully written in an easy-to-read style. In close to 70 years of living and loving the business, I've never seen a better tribute and collection. Hundreds of rare photos in full color, plus many extra surprises. You'll be looking at this for days, and it will become a treasured part of your collection. Special website price, $11.99, including U.S. postage. There's a link on the podcast episode webpage, or go straight to goodmagic.com.
Some is her natural plan For that's where it all began Hot chocolate Nan Sets a temple waving her fan Like a real American can The daughter of Sam Her dad took his cue from a note that was blue She knows how to groove It's no wonder she does when her sweet mother was A beautiful tune Hot chocolate Nan Dreamy China daughter of Sam Poppy land and popular plan The daughter of Sam Yes sir boys to hear a robot voice courtesy of YouTube tell you just some of the sneaky theme park secrets you're not supposed to know. Ex-theme park employees, what are some dirty secrets that most people don't know about? Vomit, with no visible blood, is either cleaned up with a sawdust-like material to soak up the liquid and then swept into a dustbin or hosed off with a garden hose. The coaster seat or table is usually not sanitized or anything. So, you are sitting in dried vomit particles. I worked at Dollywood when I was 18. Most ride operators are minimally trained, I even accidentally pressed the harness release, panicked and started the roller coaster. Should've seen people's faces as the train started rolling and harnesses popped open. Also, the software running the ride was Windows 95, this was 2007 on a ride built in 2004. A lot of scary, dangerous rides are operated by stupid teens. Undertrained operators were the main cause of the Smiler crash a few years ago in Alton Towers, with a little bit of computer failure thrown in too. For context, the ride often broke down. After one break, the system was rebooted, and an empty test car sent onto the track. The operators then sent another car, full of passengers, onto the track without even waiting for the test car to return. Turns out the test car had broken down, and was stuck on the track. The car full of passengers crashed into it, causing a lot of serious injuries, and the girls in the front row ended up having their legs amputated. The computer was designed to not allow more cars onto the track if one had broken down, but it had never been tested. The operators should have been tracking the course of the test car on CCTV, and never sent a second car out until the test car had returned safely. The cues to the Smiler are a lot shorter now. And that's for the best, it's an awesome ride and now you don't have to wait 3 hours to get on it. About 8 years ago, I managed a whitewater rafting ride, the big donut tubes that can sit 6 people, as a side job while in college. One day, the water filter broke down. The managers kept the ride running for over 2 weeks anyway. 
The water smelled so bad and turned brown. The inside of the raft smelled like a month-old porta potty. We were instructed to tell guests the water filter was broken but the water was clean, which I'm pretty sure was a lie. Thankfully, being a shift leader, I didn't need to go anywhere near the water, but I felt bad for my employees and the guests who rode despite looking obviously disgusted by the smell. Back in my late teens, I worked at a pretty famous theme park in Ontario, Canada. Guess at which one? I was a games op, the guys yelling at you to come and shoot the BB guns, play ski ball, try to get a basketball into a hoop, etc. Everything is tracked. Literally everything. My ID badge is swiped to start the game, if it was a race type game like water squirt gun to fill a balloon. It tracked which side I started the game on. It tracked how many prizes were won, which seats were lucky, which weren't, and adjusted things accordingly. For gun type games, like where you had to shoot the star out of the paper, I had Canadian Armed Forces JTF2, our SEAL Team 6 type guys, fail at it because the barrels are too large for the projectile, the sights are misaligned, and air pressure is not regulated, some shots are less, some are more, never over or under safety limits. You could bolt the gun down, load it up with BBs, and fire it at a giant canvas of paper, and it'll look like a shotgun blast went off, and not a rifle with a close clustering of hits. For anything that is skill-based, like ring toss, those rings are millimeters difference in sizes for the thing you're throwing them on, you have to be literally perfect with it. We had larger rings we'd hold onto that made the skill much easier so we could show you how easy it is, and they're usually kept on us and never given away. Prizes won with them were invalid, so even employees sneaking the rings to friends who showed up, was a big no-no. Also, cameras everywhere. Big prizes are tracked and in many situations you could only win one big prize per day or visit. Kids poop in the wave pool constantly. All we do is clear it out for 10 minutes and then let people back in. I refuse to ever visit a water park. I realize they're just large toilets with slides. Wave pools are a pedo's wet dream, especially when crowded. My friend's daughter, who was an 11-year-old girl at the time, had someone shove their hand down the back of her bikini and squeeze her butt. There was no way of knowing who it was. Wave pools are just giant garbage dumps, I refuse to go in them or any public pool anymore. That $15 meal that you just paid for in the restaurant? Yeah. The employees can get all of that for $2. Theme park food is definitely way overpriced for guests. There are plain clothes security officers walking around the whole entire park, you probably don't even notice. Please think twice before doing anything stupid. Many of the people who you really would hope are mature adults and aren't drunk or high, are 16-year-old stoners. They also live a very exciting life that makes annoying sitcoms seem reasonable. Many people are massively overworked. I mean 60 to 80 plus a week for months straight. Guy at a chicken tendies restaurant in the theme park was a farmer hick. Liked to do stupid pranks. Turnover was high so a manager was 16 years old. Basically kids run them parks. Anyway, wanted to fry his boot in the deep fryer to see what would happen. Boot was caked in cow poop. He dropped it in. At this time a customer was bitching about not getting his french fries. Said I didn't pay $47 to come in this park and stand in a line all day, Hick Farmer was getting annoyed with trying to tongue his boot out of the fryer. Gets annoyed at the customer and throws the fries down, fry basket right over the poop caked boot. Cooked until golden brown and served up to the customer. That was my first day working at the park and my last day in food services. Forever. To this day, if I'm ever dragged to the park for whatever reason I always avoid the chicken restaurant. 
I was a lifeguard at a seasonal water park many years ago. If a water attraction is randomly closed down, and the guards are blocking it for a short time, it's probably because someone pooped in the pool and the head guards are making sure it all got cleaned out. Very stupid and frustrating. Oh, and those big funnel slides? Yes, some of us have fallen down them. It turns out it's really easy to lose your balance when you are a 120 pounds teenage girl trying to manage a raft full of four fully grown adults. I would not recommend going down without the tube, it's terrifying. While the guards and on-site first aid are very well trained, we aren't a replacement for a doctor. Many amusement parks are in more rural areas, if you are seriously injured, and it's life-threatening, it can take a long time before you are transported to a proper ER or hospital. I say this because we were trained to get someone who is drowning safely out of the water, and treat minor injuries, but we can't put you back together if you fall 40 feet off the slides. We had something like this happen the first summer I worked. Someone was messing around on the speed slide platform, slipped past the guardrail and fell. I'm not sure they could have been helped even if they had immediate medical care, but I know it was already too late when the ambulance got there. Actually having to deal with an emergency like that is too much to ask at that age. So please, even if a rule seems stupid, follow what the guards say, take breaks when you have to, and don't push yourself when you are playing in a water park. It really is for your safety. Dear Lord where do I begin? Everything in our retail site is marked up by at minimum 600%. We get the cheapest, flimsiest stuff that is worth absolutely nothing and sell it. All the games are rigged and the prizes are worth nothing. Mornings is when it's best to play. We stop rides and pretend they're broken so we can take a break while maintenance walks down to check out our ride. We've had multiple people nearly die at the park, we are told what to write on the police report and if we speak to them directly or the press we are fired and banned for life. Worked at Cedar Point for a summer on disaster transport, may she rest in peace. Despite being an indoor ride, it would have to go down anytime there was any significant amount of rain because the roof leaked. This is especially significant for DT because it didn't run on a track like most coasters, it ran freely in a bobsled-like trough. So the ride itself would actually be affected by the weight distribution in a given train. It would also fishtail around corners really badly if the troughs were wet. So every time it rained, we'd send one of us to ride every couple cycles to feel whether or not it was fishtailing yet. Because there was no other way to know without shutting the whole ride down to walk the troughs. If we could tell that it was fishtailing, the ride would go down for mechanical reasons. We'd wait until the rain let up, then start running empty trains through to assist with drying everything up, with one of us going through occasionally until we could tell that the fishtailing had stopped. The real secret is that the ride was 100 times more fun when it was fishtailing because it was less predictable. Another case of the ride being a little bit unsafe making it more fun. We do indeed hate you. That one clever thing you do to try to get a rise out of us? Yeah. We've seen it a million times before. Being nice is a great way to get us to treat you well. Nice people get to ride again if I'm feeling generous. We have a little book which had the ability to rectify situations. You dropped your soda? We can get you another. Weren't supposed to, but we did give them out for magical moments. Could give you a fast pass for any ride in the park, free food etc. At the end of the night, we walk the track and locate items lost. Some of the unsavory cast members would find items and take them, one dude I knew sold stuff on eBay all the time. Yes, we can get you into the park for free, no we're not going to. Working hotels, we give back ridiculous amounts of money for stupid inconveniences. In addition, 
If someone is really nice or celebrating something, we can deliver free stuff to the room. Once spent $300 on someone cause they were incredibly kind and celebrating a milestone anniversary. If you complain enough, Disney will cater to you. We know and you're full of it. We've heard everything. At the end of the day, it's a job, aside from college program kids who actually think the experience is going to mean something in their lives. And most of us don't give a crap about you, how much you've saved for years, etc. It's a minimum wage job and we don't get paid enough to deal with your BS. Thanks for listening to Radio TTS. You're not in school anymore. There's no homework. There are links on the webpage at ballycast.com or subscribe on iTunes. And all previous episodes are available as well. See you next episode. A pat on the back for me. 
A Ballycast listener who bought my CD-ROM on the Midway comments, The CD arrived today. I appreciate the quick shipping. I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate the information that is contained on this disc. This is actually the second time I've ordered this. The first time I ordered the three-disc set, but I somehow misplaced it before I had a chance to read it all. I'm a huge fan of the Carnival Inside Show. The things I've learned from your research will be an inspiration to me for years to come. My kids may not get to spend much time on the Midway or ever see a sideshow in the years to come, but they will know my best replication of the food and games there from the information you compiled. All very well and extremely satisfying, but I fancy myself a good interviewer. But I'm not so good being interviewed, as I found when I absentmindedly babbled my way through an interview by Mark Kumar of Simple Podcast Cloud, who wanted to talk about my seven years of doing Ballycast. I'll put it up on the episode webpage, but you won't think I did well at all. Laugh for while you can, monkey boy! On the Midway, Secrets of the Circus, Carnival, and Sideshow, a book on CD-ROM by Wayne Kaiser. Ooh, that's me. Assisted by hundreds of old-time showmen and showwomen. It's all here, alive, behind this curtain. Lifelong carny and circus veterans told us the facts, and they're all here. This book is not a happy clown book for children. It's the real behind-the-scenes story, and parts of it are not pretty. What's in it? My Carney Lingo Dictionary, the most comprehensive compendium in print anywhere. The secret backstage talk of workers in the carnival and the circus is a great way to understand the inner workings of the carnival lot. The secrets of dozens of your favorite carnival games, honest and uh, otherwise, which are winnable and which are always rigged. Find out here. Twelve full-length books from archives all over the world, like Sideshow and Animal Tricks, a how-to book by Hereward Carrington, and Houdini's book on working acts. Carnival Foods, those great tastes you can only get when the show is in town. Recipes for 16 great carnival foods like candy apples, snow cones, corn dogs, funnel cake, elephant ears, caramel popcorn, and more. Circus and Carnival Humor, contributed by veterans of the traveling life. Plus our own amazing dark ride. The prizes, crazy things you try to win from stuffed animals to balloons, from plaster figures to plastic swords. A look at prizes of the past and links to wholesalers today. Carney's Only Catalogs, 538 pages in our own click-to-read browser. See the legendary Brill's Bible of Building Plans, selling plans for rides, games, sideshow acts, and much more. H.C. Evans Company offered honest and crooked carnival games, gambling equipment, loaded dice, and more. Hex Manufacturing Company sold prizes from flash to slum, plaster figurines, blankets, and just in case you might need one, pistols from a very rare 1933 original. The late Slim Price, old-time carnival showman and moderator of the Freak Show Discussion Group, said... 
you have any kind of interest in Carney or circus lore, this is a CD you must own. It's an awesome piece of work. I'm still finding stuff in it. It's a pleasure to read. Wonderfully written in an easy-to-read style. In close to 70 years of living and loving the business, I've never seen a better tribute and collection. Hundreds of rare photos in full color, plus many extra surprises. You'll be looking at this for days, and it will become a treasured part of your collection. Special website price, $11.99, including U.S. postage. There's a link on the podcast episode webpage, or go straight to goodmagic.com. People are complex creatures in a complex world, to put it politely. Sometimes they're intriguing and nuanced, rugged individualists. More often they're infuriating. And P.T. Barnum was one of the most complex of odd birds. Barnum was well known for exhibiting things like the Fiji mermaid, things that were quite obviously not what he claimed them to be. But he found the idea of fleecing others in the way that spiritualists and palm readers did to be unthinkable. Those were the real humbugs. And as he saw it, he was just providing some much-needed, much-loved, straightforward and simple entertainment. When he wasn't exhibiting an ancient senior citizen impossibly billed as George Washington's nursemaid, Barnum was an outspoken supporter of several surprising causes. For his first 40 or so years, he enjoyed alcoholic beverages. But on his 1849 tour of Europe, he realized just how common drunkenness was among the upper echelons of society, which made them almost uniformly unpleasant. When he heard of the temperance movement's belief that moderate drinkers were just as harmful to society and to themselves as were heavy drinkers, he swore off alcohol completely and had his stockpile of champagne destroyed. He even took to the lecture circuit to deliver a series of talks on the evils of alcohol. When he was elected mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut, he based his political career in part on the idea that it was everyone's duty to combat the rising tide of alcoholism. After signing the temperance pledge, Barnum wrote, Our watchword now was prohibition. We had become convinced that it was a matter of life and death that we must kill alcohol or alcohol would kill us or our friends. Barnum had initially been pro-slavery. In the 1840s, he gave a few pro-slavery talks in Europe. He made no secret of the fact that he had purchased his own slave and wasn't above having him whipped for transgressions. He also once wrote that if slaves were ever freed, he anticipated that they would run mad, looting and killing as they went. But in 1865, the 14th Amendment was ratified by Connecticut, outlawing slavery and enumerating what it meant to be a full citizen and what rights came with that, like the right to vote. 
Barnum used his talents as a showman and a speaker to campaign in support of awarding freed slaves, at least those who were literate and of good moral character, the right to vote. Barnum based his stance on the idea that ignorance operated in direct opposition to the ideas of liberty, justice, and freedom for all. His reasoning took a very strange path. He pointed to the gentle nature of the poor black man, living a religious life and existence with no desire for revenge. Proof of that to him was the fact that so many American slaves didn't revolt during the war, rise up in open rebellion and kill their masters, as they had in Haiti, Mexico, and Jamaica. He completely ignored Nat Turner's rebellion and several others in America, in which that's exactly what happened. Barnum added that neither the Irish, the Chinese, the Portuguese, nor any other white man would have shown so restrained a response. Clearly, the newly freed slaves were of a moral character that could benefit from education. As he said, we must educate and Christianize those who are now by circumstances our social inferiors. At a glance, odd statements like that might simply seem to reflect the attitudes of the day. Barnum was also a pioneer in theater. To many at the time, the theater was a den of evil. But in 1853, Barnum opened the 3,000-seat Moral Lecture Room inside his American museum. He would never call it a theater. It was meant to showcase family-oriented moral plays. Outside in the same museum were shocking and disgusting things, but here was a place families could come with their children and be assured that they would see nothing but lessons on being good, decent people. In the moral lecture room, he presented over 100 performances of the five-act temperance play, The Drunkard, or The Fallen Saved, the most popular play produced in the United States. And when audiences were finished listening to the message on stage, temperance pledges and other promotional literature were handed out. However, Barnum's public morality often took a back seat to appealing to the masses. Not every attendee could be counted on to agree with the abolitionist movement, and Barnum was all about maximizing the take at the box office. So he showed anti-slavery plays like Uncle Tom's Cabin in the moral lecture room. But they were often edited and softened up a bit to avoid offending any pro-slavery audience members too much. More than once, Barnum went head-to-head with the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. In 1866, the president of the society, Henry Berg, condemned Barnum for his practice of feeding live rabbits to a boa constrictor. The slow death of live animals was unnecessary, especially when the terrified animals were left in the snake enclosure for days until the snake got hungry. And Berg insisted that snakes would eat dead prey, otherwise they should be allowed to starve. 
Barnum replied with statements from professors that snakes would, in fact, die if not given live prey, as well as the sentiment that he was only giving people what they wanted, seeing animals in their natural state. Weirdly, the letters of support and examples, like the fact that no person would ever refuse a lobster salad simply because the lobster had been boiled alive, and how silly it was to refuse to eat raw oysters because they're swallowed alive. The debate went back and forth, full of politely worded insults. Public opinion swelled quite massively on the side of Burke, and in 1867, Barnum ran a newspaper article stating that there was just no pleasing some people. That wasn't the end of the story. Oddly enough, the two men ultimately became friends, and Barnum was instrumental in forming a Connecticut branch of the ASPCA. Today, Barnum is most remembered in the context of the circus, but he only turned to the circus after he had lost millions of dollars in three museum fires. The first fire was an act of war. Confederate President Jefferson Davis believed that the war's end seemed inevitable, but that the South could still turn the tide by waging a guerrilla war against the Union. At the end of 1864, as the war drew to an end, Confederate spies were sent to New York City, tasked with setting a series of small fires to divert attention as they freed Confederate prisoners held in the city, looting the treasury and seizing everything they could from the arsenal. But when it came time to go through with the plan, most of the spies backed out, and those who remained decided to set fire to four hotels each. One of them got drunk, set fire to three hotels, and burned Barnum's Museum. Fortunately, 2,500 customers were evacuated. In July 1865, the museum burned again. The fire started in an office and spread quickly. Most of the live animals in the museum died, including two whales that were kept in tanks in the lower levels and boiled to death in the fire. Other animals escaped to the streets. Look out, there goes a lion, and many were never seen again. There were no casualties except the wax figure of Jefferson Davis, which, as the popular press claimed and Barnum advertised, was wearing the very same dress that the real-life president of the Confederacy had been wearing when captured just two months before. The crowd watching the fire took the opportunity to hang the wax effigy in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. Barnum tried to reopen the museum nearby. Even that museum burned to the ground. He then turned to a safer solution, opening the venue that would later be Madison Square Garden, and he eventually turned to the idea of a traveling circus. Barnum was known for his wild, exotic exhibitions, but during and after the Civil War, he wasn't above exploiting the public's fascination with war, either. During the war, he recruited a number of people to take part in his shows and go on display in his museum, including a 102-year-old American Revolution veteran and an 11-year-old drummer boy. Also on display was Pauline Cushman, 
the actress who became a spy. While on tour in Kentucky, she accepted payment to offer a toast to the Confederate president, an act that got her fired and marked her as a Southern sympathizer. She got a chance to redeem herself in the eyes of the Union when she was offered the chance to spy for the North. Dressing as a camp follower, she was eventually caught stealing battle plans, tried, and sentenced to hang. But Union troops freed her and returned her to the North. After the war, she joined up with Barnum and traveled with his circus, sharing stories of her wartime exploits. In 1873, the Comstock Laws put an end to the promotion of birth control methods across the country. The laws were passed in the vain hope of returning a certain sort of morality to the country, and for Barnum, the laws weren't enough. At the time, he was kicking off a political career in the Connecticut legislature and as the mayor of Bridgeport as well as his career as a showman. In his role as chairman of the Connecticut House Temperance Committee, he sponsored legislation which would ultimately make Connecticut's contraception laws among the strictest in the country. The laws made it completely illegal to own, use, or sell contraceptives in Connecticut. The law stood until 1965 when it was argued in front of the Supreme Court that the law was unconstitutional and violated a couple's right to marital privacy. The court ruled 7-2 to two that the law was in outright opposition to personal freedom. There's a psychological principle called the Barnum Effect, and it explains why some people believe in things like astrology and horoscopes. Make something vague enough, and it can apply to anyone especially to someone who wants to believe. It's fostered by a combination of things. When promoted by a charismatic showman with some basic information about the human condition. The irony is that Barnum didn't believe in the then particularly popular spiritualists or mediums. In his book, Humbugs of the World, he wrote an expose describing how table wrapping was done how mediums answered personal questions that were actually just common sense, and he debunked mediums who claimed to be able to answer any letter with guidance from the spirit realm without opening it or looking inside of it. Barnum even issued a challenge to the spirit mediums of the day. He would write a series of questions to the spirit world and seal the letters in an envelope. Anyone who would correctly answer the questions without touching the envelope would win $500, and Barnum said he would consider it money well spent. Nobody ever won the money. I wish to give my parting thanks to the British public and to assure them that I shall ever gratefully cherish most pleasant memories of their kindness and hospitality even higher than the pecuniary success with which they have crowned my efforts to please them. I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, Edison's phonograph, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard 
centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. <clears throat> we going out on that joke? No, we do song that help. But not, not much. much, no. Across the way from where I live, there lives a girl, and her name is Rebecca. She's 23, 24, 25, 26, and saw an oriental show, and then decided she would go to Mecca, across the sea. And so she went one day, the turkey far away, and she lived near the Sultan's den. She stayed there just two years, got full of new ideas, and now she's back home again. Since Rebecca came back from Mecca, all day long she keeps on smoking turkey tobacco. With her veil upon her face, she keeps dancing round the place. And yesterday her father found her with a turkey towel around her. Everyone's worried so They think she's crazy in the dome She's as bold as Peter Bear As Peter Bear But Becky's bearer Since Rebecca came back home In Mecca where the nights are hot Rebecca got an awful lot of learning She certainly did She goes to sleep when shadows creep and has to keep a bowl of incense burning, some classy kids. Her mother feels so sad, her brother Mo is mad, and he keeps on complaining so. To satisfy her whim, she keeps on calling him Mohammed instead of Mo. Since Rebecca came back from Mecca, all day long she keeps on smoking turkey tobacco. She lays on a Turkish rug, everyone says she's a bug. And since she's back home from the harem, she's got clothes but she don't wear them. Everyone's worried so, he made the Sultan lose his throne. Once our little sister Sonia wore her clothes and got pneumonia, since Rebecca came back home. <laughs> Everyone's worried though. They think he's crazy in the dome. All the boys in town are picking. He talks turkey, they want chicken. Since Rebecca came back home. Ballycast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at Ballycast.com. And please also see our web sales and support site, goodmagic.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Thanks for riding. Please exit to your left.
please think twice before doing anything stupid.